Well, good morning and welcome once again. We are continuing our study in First Thessalonians, uh, and just as a reminder of where we've been, we are in chapter 2, and we'll be kind of transitioning over to chapter 3, um, but in First Thessalonians chapter 2, we've already looked at how the gospel motivates Paul. We've seen how the gospel motivates his ministry, um, and how it was not any other motivation. It wasn't for greed or... Uh, for some other duplicitous reason, uh, it wasn't for glory or fame, but he was motivated out of uh, the gospel. Last week, we looked at how the gospel uh, works in us and transforms us, that it actually impacts our conduct and how the gospel changes the way we live. Looked at sanctification. This week, Paul gets to the nub, if you will, of his letter, the reason for his letter. His letter was written uh, in response to uh, sending Timothy to get a report. And we hear the account of that process, if you will, and the report that was received. And so this is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in Ephesians, or in, I'm sorry, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to chapter 3, verse 13. You can follow along with me in your bulletins or your Bibles, but hear God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 27 to chapter 3, verse 13. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more, the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting uh, of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain." But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us this good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before, the, before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see your face, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus 
with all his saints. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we we come to your word and we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would reveal to us the wonders of the love of Christ in it, that you would use me. Lord, help us to grow, to grow in our love, to grow in our love of you and our love of one another. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled the the sermon, uh, The Burden of Love. Um, one One of the challenges I think we all face in this life, no matter who you are, is the challenge of love, and I and I mean that in in the best of ways. We uh, grow up in families. We get married. Maybe we have kids. Maybe all of these things. Maybe we're in friendships and relationships. Um, and in every single one of those, in a sense, there is a a burden on us to love, a good burden, a desire that we have. And yet, oftentimes, we find ourselves struggling, don't we? Even in the most intimate relationships. We struggle, but we long to be those who love. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning, maybe there's a few out there, a few curmudgeons in the world who say, I just don't want to love anybody. I think think those are, maybe those few people that exist are, are those who have found the burden so much and so difficult and so challenging that they give up. But I, my heart, my guess is that if you press them hard enough, they long both to be loved and to be able to love. That's how we were designed. That's how we were made. There's a great burden on us to love. And one of the reasons it's challenging, or maybe the reason that it's so difficult for us to love, is that we are broken by sin. We are fallen. And so at the very outset, and I often, you'll, you'll find me going back to Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3 and chapter 1 all over and over again in my sermons, probably once in every sermon. But if you go back there to that moment when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that burden to love became what was free, what was easy, that relationship with God and with one another all of a sudden became a, a difficult, challenging task. Adam and Eve hid from God. Adam and Eve blamed one another. See, the conflicts started to arise. That that is the state of affairs for all of mankind. And the good news of the gospel, the good news that we are going to see today is that, in fact, the, the gospel transforms us in such a way that enables us to love once again in a way that is Maybe, maybe, maybe say, more free. And, and I don't mean that there's all sorts of love in the world. And I don't want to suggest that, that there's no such thing as human love with, without the context of the Christian faith. There is. But it's of a different nature. It's of a different kind. When the gospel penetrates and breaks into our lives, when it transforms us, one of the fundamental transformations it makes is that it enables us to love with the love that God loves. What an amazing thing. And that's what I want us to consider today as we look at this text. And my, my, my big hope, my, my 
my longing for us as a church, as individuals, is that we would abound in love. Abound in love. We're going to look at this text in three ways. First, we're going to see how uh, we abound in love in affliction, which is a remarkable thing as Christians. Called to abound in love and affliction. And we, in fact, do that. And we'll see that in the text. Second, that we abound in love through faith. Through faith. And then finally, we abound in love with hope. Now, you'll notice again, I said this at the very outset, uh, the very beginning of the letter, that one of the themes that keeps coming back is this idea of faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love that we see uh, in our text. Uh, we see it over and over again. These things uh, 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 are, are sort of maybe Paul's heartbeat for the Thessalonian church, and we see it in our text uh, this morning. But I just wanted to note that, that structure once again. But to begin, I want us to think about abounding in love, in affliction. We'll notice that Paul prays at the end of chapter 3, uh, in verse 11 and thir- to 13, he says this. This is his prayer, and we'll come to it at the end, but I just want to notice one little part in here. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness and, uh, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is Paul's prayer. He stops, he takes a moment out, and he says, I'm going to pray for you now. And it, it, it is uh, here in the midst of that, uh, that he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It seems that Paul prays for the Thessalonian church to abound in in exactly the same kind of love that he has for them. Uh, We see this uh, throughout this letter, this love that Paul has for the Thessalonian church. And I just want to look at it in our text uh, particularly, and just just to note the kind of love that he has uh, for them. And the first thing that we notice about Paul's love here at the end of chapter 2 is that his abounding love is manifest maybe most intensely in the face of affliction. It's like as affliction sort of boils the pot, if you will, uh, Paul's affection comes out even more, more intensely. It it shows itself. Notice here uh, in the text. Uh, First, it says, what are the afflictions that we see that Paul faces. First, he's torn away from them. Notice it says, but since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, though not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Torn away from them. The text is interesting here. The word there for torn away, to be pulled apart, is the word uh, for orphaned. Orphaned. Paul is saying, we were orphaned from you. Now, this is really intriguing because when you think about it, uh, in some ways, the Thessalonians were the the children of Paul in the faith sense, and they were orphaned from him. But Paul is expressing 
the kind of affliction it was to be pulled away from them. And it is the kind of affliction that an orphan, that a child feels when they are pulled away from their, their parents. That intensely that he uses this language of orphan. Not only was he torn away from them, but after being torn away from them, the Apostle Paul tries over and over and over again to get back to them. Notice, notice this. He says, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Over and over, he tried to get there. So not only were they torn away, but any endeavor or effort to, to reach them was thwarted. But more than that, it wasn't just thwarted in any general sense. Paul, the Apostle Paul says very clearly that they were thwarted by Satan himself. This was a spiritual issue. For whatever reason, the Lord was permitting Satan to prevent Paul from getting to the Thessalonians. Not only this, not only did this is the kind of affliction that they faced, that they were torn away, that they couldn't get there, that it was a spiritual, it was a spiritual wall, if you will, that was between him and the, the Thessalonian church. But after all of that, finally he just says, well, I'm going to let go of my most precious companion, Timothy. Notice the language here when he says, uh, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to, le- to, uh, to be left behind. So they didn't say, we were willing to give you Timothy. He says, we were willing to be left behind. Meaning, Timothy was of great resource and encouragement and partnership in the gospel. It was a big ordeal to send Timothy away. Of course, we know that these afflictions only touch on the sum of Paul's afflictions that he faces, not just for the Thessalonian church, but also for uh, all the churches that he ministers to, right? The kind of afflictions that Paul faced in order to bring the gospel ministry to bear. We know that he was imprisoned, that he was stoned almost to death, that he was shipwrecked, that he faced illness. All sorts of things happened to Paul. Afflictions, sufferings. And through all of it, what stands out is Paul's love. Paul's love not only for the unbeliever and his willingness to go and share the gospel, but in his love for that church, whether it's Thessalonians church, whether it's the Philippian church, whether it's the Ephesian church, whatever church it is that he goes to, he falls in love, not in the mawkish American sentimentality kind of love, but in the agape God-centered love that means life-giving, self-sacrificing love, desirous love. Of course, the afflictions aren't Paul's alone. They're shared by the church. We see here Paul alluding to the afflictions that the Thessalonians themselves had to face as well here in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It says that no one be moved by these afflictions. Which afflictions? Well, again, if we go back to our our previous sermons, we remember that uh, in Thessalonica, the, the little church, when Paul was there, faced opposition from the, uh, the, the Jews that didn't believe, uh, they were dragged uh, to the Gentile courts and dragged to the Gentile mobs and, were, and faced all sorts of terror. So we know that 
that they faced affliction for their faith as well. Now, we've talked as a, as in this sermon series quite a bit about the reality that affliction, suffering, and not just this sermon series. We looked at it in a Philippian ser- uh, series and, and elsewhere, uh, well, even in our Habakkuk series, we, about the reality that, that, that we live in a world that, that is full of affliction, full of suffering and trials. Um, and that, in fact, as Christians, these aren't some sort of negative byproduct of following Christ. They're just, yeah, by the way, just because you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. But actually, in fact, uh, they are at the very heart of discipleship, right? This is part and parcel to be a Christian. Jesus says, pick up your cross, follow me. We've talked about this. This is part and parcel uh, to our walk as Christians. But it is one thing to recognize that suffering and affliction is part of the Christian life. It's another thing to say that in some way, uh, it's, it's, it, it, so we can say, yes, we know that it's part, but it's another thing to say, and we know that it's part because it is part of the refining process. You go through a trial, you go through suffering, God takes away the dross, he changes who you are and transforms you and makes you, your faith stand out, that Philippians uh, uh, or Peter picture uh, where that faith stands out, uh, we know those, that aspect uh, to suffering. It's one thing to say that. But it's a whole other thing to say that affliction acts as an amplifier to Christian love. Because that's what I think we see in the text. So not only does it refine us and transform us and change us, but it actually does something else. It amplifies Christian love. I think one of the challenges is that affliction and suffering often test love. What do I mean by this? Well, let's think about marriage. Marriages will often struggle. Sometimes, sadly, they will dissolve in the very face of trials. Right? I know of examples of this. Maybe you've experienced them yourself. You understand the trial, instead of bringing about that mutual love and affection, actually pulls at the very, the very ten, ten <clears throat> things that hold that relationship together. And so it, when I say that affliction in the Christian life amplifies love, it doesn't necessarily ring true. It doesn't feel like that. It's not just marriages. Friendships fade apart often in the midst of trial. I I think, you know, one of the challenges I've seen among folks is over the past two years is how friendships have become frayed in the face of trial. Bitterness and resentments are often the byproducts of suffering. Somebody who suffers often holds bitterness and resentments against others, even, even if they were not necessarily directly the cause. Maybe they were simply, it's because they didn't suffer as you did. You see? So, so what, Rob, do you mean when you say that suffering and affliction uh, 
uh, actually amplify love, this doesn't make sense in the world that I live in. But what we see here in Thessalonica, or between the Thessalonian church and Paul, is the amplification of love. Paul's love and desire for the Thessalonians is magnified by his being thwarted in seeing them and knowing that they too are facing affliction and trial. Notice all the love language here. He's torn away, orphaned. We're apart, but not in heart. We're apart in person, but our hearts are still connected. I endeavored eagerly with great desire to see you. And and by the way, that word great desire, uh, again, I think to help fit the context, the the translators kind of dim the meaning here, but that word for great desire, his great longing to see the Thessalonians is the word to lust for. Most frequently in, in the New Testament, the word is used to describe illicit desire. Sinful desire. Except in one other place in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke. And in that space in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus himself, the night before he's about to be betrayed, says that he desires, he lusts after having a meal with his disciples. Same language. He longs so desperately to be in intimate communion with his disciples. That's the same language here that Paul uses, his desire to be. It's it's love language. Love language. He longs to see them. He can't bear it any longer, etc. You see, rather than pulling them apart, the suffering and affliction, the, the separation draws them towards one another. And I want to stop here and dwell on this as we think about what it means for us to abound in love in the midst of affliction. So to abound in love in the midst of affliction. First, affliction causes discord, causes disunity, all that stuff I described before, bitterness and resentments, when it is not viewed in light of the gospel and in the light of glory. Let me say that again. Affliction causes discord and disunity and bitterness and resentments when it is not viewed, when that suffering, when that affliction, when that pain is not viewed in light of the gospel and in light of glory of what's coming. When we lose perspective. Notice over and over again how Paul ties affliction to the work of the gospel. The hindering was spiritual. Paul recognized right away that this was Satan who was the one who was blocking the way. Notice that it was the tempter who, would, who, who he was worried about would come and pull them from that place of stability and strength. Notice also Paul's boasting in them that, that they were his glory and his crown. Notice the comfort uh, in affliction. Uh, this is really interesting here in, in chapter 3. Uh, he says this. He says in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through 
your faith. And then it goes on and it says, for we now live. For we now live. We'll come back to that little sentence because it's, it's quite remarkable. But what I want us to just notice right now is how tied Paul's affection is to these gospel realities, to the fact that they're facing spiritual battles, to the fact that they are uh, comforted by the faith, particularly, of the other. There's a connection. And then look, of course, in verses 11 and to 13 is the prayer uh, and that hope of glory, that looking forward to Seeing them face to face, yes, in this world they want that, but the longing is for Jesus to come again. It's all wrapped up in this, in this picture of them connected in Christ Jesus through the gospel and looking forward to a day when those afflictions will be gone and they will see their Lord and Savior face to face. You're going to look at the end of this, this little letter and it's going to be this glorious vision of the return of Jesus. That glory, hope, and that changes our perspective on the suffering. On the other hand, when suffering is seen as meaningless, as not tied to uh, our faith in any way, as not tied to the gospel, uh, when our eyes are on the temporary things, when we're thinking about our current stuff and we're not looking forward to glory and not looking to the eternal, when we view relationships not as about Paul serving the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians serving Paul and others, when we look at it more about ourselves, when we rather think about serving ourselves rather than about serving God in those relationships, that affliction, that suffering, that difficulty that we face will make us bitter. It's about perspective. So first, affliction causes discord, bitterness, and resentments when it's not viewed in light of the gospel and of glory. But second, when we share in suffering for Christ, it binds us together in such a way that Distance, not even death, can pull us apart. Paul longs to see them face to face. And the good news is the gospel guarantees it. The gospel guarantees it. When Christ was preparing the table, when he was here looking at the table and saying, I, I lust after you to have this meal with me. He knew that he was going to be torn away, right? He was going to be pulled away from his disciples. He was going to be like Paul, orphaned from them. And he says to them, and will not eat of this meal until I eat it new with you in the kingdom of God. We share in the sufferings of Christ, and that binds us together in such a way that neither distance nor death can separate us. As believers, this is one of the greatest encouragements that we can, we can be separated from time and time and space 
and we have great affection and love for one another. In fact, that longing for glory binds us even closer together. If we thought we're never going to see them again and we're never going to have any relationship with them again and there's nothing to hope for, and then we would just cut those relationships off. We would say we want nothing to do with it. But because we know that there's a hope of glory, we look for and long to see folks face to face. It binds us together. Just as Christ longs for us, looks forward to us feasting with him again, as we do with him. So what does it mean for us as we face affliction? It's important that we gain perspective, that we rest in the hope of the gospel, that we recognize the commonality of our affliction, that we pray and long for one another. And this is really basic, that we express that love. You just notice how Paul expresses his love. We ought to do, we're not good at that as New Englanders. You're going to shake your hand and say, good to see you. To express our love. So abound in love, in affliction. Second, that was a long way, first point, but second, abound in love through faith. This is very closely tied to the first point. But if affliction was the context of their love and it manifested or magnified their love, faith is the conduit. It's the, it's the means of love. And what I mean by this is faith is that instrument and gift of God that enables us to love with that agape Christian love. Let's look at the text. First, we see Paul's faith and how it expresses itself and love. Look at verses two. Uh, look at chapter two, verses nine, verse nineteen. He says, "For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy." Now, at first blush, the idea of Paul boasting and having a crown or glory—you know, like <laughs> you're my crown, you're my glory. I got you. I'm putting it on. That, that seems antithetical to love, right? It's like, it's all about me. It's all about my glory and wearing that crown in heaven. And, you know, if you guys stand firm in the faith, I can put the crown on. If you guys don't stand firm in the faith, then I won't get the crown. Um, and it can feel a little bit opposite of what we're talking about. But I think that's the opposite of what Paul is doing here. You can't read any of the epistles of Paul and not see over and over and over again how salvation is by grace through faith. That for Paul, that is the drumbeat. It is not my work, it is the Lord who is at work. Ephesians 2 says it most plainly of all, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is a gift of God so that none should boast. But if you go on, Paul goes on and says, for we are his workmanship, Right? So it's not, not even that we are saved by grace through faith and then we do everything else. So some Paul can say, well, I was saved by grace, but now, it's, now it is my work that, that I'm going to boast in. But he goes on and he says, for it is Christ, we are Christ's workmanship. And he's the one who works through us. He even prepares those works beforehand that we, we may walk in them. That's the language of Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul, you're boasting. Isn't boasting by definition a bad thing? You just said that none should boast in Ephesians 2. You said 
This is a gift of God so that none should boast. But Paul is boasting. Well, let's think about this a little more. His boasting, his joy, his glory is not in his power and might to save the Thessalonians and establish them firmly in the faith and to make them to love and to grow in in good works. That isn't what Paul's talking about. Rather, his boasting and joy and glory is in seeing the Holy Spirit wrought fruit of his faithful labors. And let me say that again. Paul's boasting is not in, in what Paul is doing, but his boasting is in seeing what the Lord is doing as the Holy Spirit works through his words and ministry to establish them in the faith. God working through him. That's his boast. To say, look, God can even use a sinner like me. Isn't that our boast? It's not that I have anything. It's that Christ has everything. Paul's faith in the God who saves and preserves is expressed in love and joy for the Thessalonians. Let let me play this out a little bit because maybe experientially, uh, you, you, you might already know this. If you've had the opportunity, if you're a believer, you're here this morning and you have had the opportunity to share, share the, your faith with somebody and you share the love of Christ with them and they seem intrigued and, and you open scripture with them and they seem to be gravitating towards it and you walk with them and you talk with them and you, you open the gospel to them and they are all of a sudden uh, saying, what must I do to be saved? If you've ever been in that position there's a joy that you can't hardly express. Because you know from the, from, the, from the minute that you started opening up Scripture with that person that it had nothing to do with you. It wasn't about your words because you probably most of the time were just fumbling along, as I do, and trying to say something. And somehow the Lord works. And you're just amazed and wondering at how God is working through you has nothing to do with you, but how he's working through you. And then what happens in that relationship? That person comes to faith and they grow in faith. Then anytime, even if they move on, anytime you see them, you just say, oh, hey, how's it going? You're bonded to that person. I love you. I'm, I'm, I find joy in you. How is your walk with the Lord going? I've been so concerned about you. I pray for you daily. I want to know what's going on. If you've experienced that kind of thing. You know it's not about you at all. The crown and glory of Paul is not his own. It's Christ's. And he wears it. Paul will wear it like a badge. He'll put on the crown and he'll say, look at Jesus. Look at the wonders of him. I know it's a poor analogy, but it's a very poor analogy, but if you have a favorite sports team, whether it's, you know, the Red Sox or the Yankees, the Patriots, whoever. I use we language. Do you? When the Patriots win, I say we. Did I do anything? Nothing. Nothing. But I identify myself with that work, and I'm so excited, and I act like it's my glory. I never stepped foot on a field in my life in an NFL stadium. I've hardly stepped on a football field. I'm not just not that. But I am a we. I am part of that team. Identify with that glory. It's, it's not the perfect 
example. But Paul's faith in Christ and love of the Thessalonians is so wrapped up that he can't help. He can't help but want to know what's going on with them. He wants to see Christ at work. He wants to see the power of the gospel bearing fruit of faith. He wants to see it in his own life, but he wants to see it in the life of the Thessalonians. And we see abounding love in and through the faith of the Thessalonians when Paul finally gets the report. Did you notice that? He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you are always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Did you notice that language Paul uses? He says, he has brought us good news of your faith. Good news, just so you are aware, is gospel. That's what the word is. That in the Greek, it's the same word. You always, he says, you brought us the gospel of your faith. The good news of your faith. Now, it's an odd way, an unusual way for Paul to use the language because he usually uses good news in a very technical term. The good news of Jesus Christ for salvation. But here he's talking about their faith. They're standing firm in the faith. Why does he use that language? Because it's a testimony to the power of God. What else do we see in terms of the faith of the Thessalonians? Uh, That they remembered Paul kindly. Remember, Paul made a defense. He's like, there's a lot of naysayers out there. There's a lot of people speaking ill of me. But you, you've remembered me kindly. And they longed to see Paul and his companions as well. And so Paul is comforted about them through their faith. You see, it wasn't just that the Thessalonians believed the gospel. It wasn't just that they suffered with the apostles. You see, their mutual love was a testament. The fact that they had this affection was a testament or testimony to the faith that God was doing in them. In fact, Paul is so overwhelmed with joy in hearing the report of their faith and love that he says, for now we live. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm sort of overwhelmed by this statement because what does Paul mean? What does he mean when he says, since we got this good report, we hear of your faith, we hear of your love, we hear of your hope, we hear of how you're grounded and how we have this mutual affection and now we live. What does Paul mean by that? It's as if Paul is saying, it would have been like death to us had we heard that you did not stand firm in the faith. And anybody who's experienced that understands. You see, the Thessalonians' love and faith stands as a testimony to the power of God in salvation. Friends, Love and faith are inseparable. They go hand in hand. Faith in God is expressed in love. Firstly, love for one another. Secondly, also for others and even for our enemies. John says it this way in his first epistle. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Faith begets love.
And the reason for this, John says very clearly, in this is love. God first loved us. The reason these things are so intricately intertwined is because God is love and his love for us pours itself out into us and then out of us. And we are necessarily born anew to made to love. So what does that mean? Your call is to abound in love through faith. If you find it difficult to love your neighbor, if you find it difficult to love your spouse, if you find it difficult to love others and you feel that burden of love and that weight of love and you say, I just don't love, I, I, I struggle with anger and bitterness, let me suggest to you that your issue is not with that person fundamentally, but it is your faith in God. They're intricately intertwined. And if you're in that place, my my plea is consider what it looks like to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm weak. I'm somebody who struggles with bitterness and anger. But Lord, you are a God of love. You have loved me despite my own anger and sin. Lord, help me to love my neighbor as myself. It's the fruit. It's the fruit of faith. Put your trust in Christ. See him, the one who loved when we hated. Finally, and then this is just a conclusion, and I'm just going to wrap it up very, very quickly, is this final prayer that Paul prays. Abound in love with hope. I've already expressed to you that that, that, that sort of future-looking nature of our faith that looks in hope to the coming of our Lord Jesus is, in fact, the thing that enables us to love more freely now. Notice here in verse 11 and following, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. There's the prayer. Lord, bring us back together. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul, he can't see the Thessalonians. He wants to, but he, he isn't with them. But he has confidence that what the Lord has set out to do that he will accomplish, that he will make those Thessalonians like himself, a people that love, a holy and blameless people before God. How is this at all possible? How can we abound in love? Because our hope is not in our ability to love in our strength, but it is in our, our hope is in the living God and in Christ Jesus who is coming again, who's going to restore us and transform us and change us, and he has given to us his Holy Spirit. So what does it mean for you to abound in love with hope? It means stop looking at your circumstance, stop looking at yourself, and start looking at Jesus.
the one who said at the table, I lust after you to have a meal with you and to be in intimate communion with you, and I want you. And so I'm giving myself to you. And in doing so, we're going to be apart. We're going to be orphaned from one another for a time. But I'm giving you my spirit, the spirit of adoption that says you are my child and that can never be taken away because I love you. And I'm coming again to bring you home with me. All of us together, connected, abiding in the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.